Howdy, I'm from Texas, so that is a warm Texas greeting for you all today. Today we are continuing our study in the book of 1 Peter. We are in 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be studying verses 1 through 11. Now in this passage we will learn about the importance of living in the Spirit and we will contrast what it's like to live in the Spirit compared to what it is like to live in the flesh. The passage today is very, very practical. It encourages us in daily Christian living. And also at the end of the passage, there will be a section on spiritual gifts and how to use those spiritual gifts for the building up of the church. So again, it's a very practical passage and I hope you'll stick with us to the end because I believe if you come into this passage with a hungry heart to learn, I believe that the Holy Spirit will speak to you and that your life will be changed. I will read the first part of 1 Peter 4. First, I'll read verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, This is a very interesting phrase. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might, and here's the theme for the passage today, live in the spirit the way God does. So we see living in the spirit contrasted with living in the flesh or according to the passions of the flesh. So let's go ahead and get right into the passage. If you see... The first verse, you already see this word suffering mentioned two more times. If you followed with us to this point, you know that the book of First Peter is, a lot of it is talking about suffering. And there were many new believers coming into the church. And perhaps they thought, okay, life is going to be easy, or this is going to be some kind of a dream or a paradise. And Peter's telling them, no, it's not going to be like that at all you are going to face suffering for your belief. And that was especially true in the Roman, under the Roman Empire that they lived under. Uh, It was about the time of Nero at that time. And Nero was notorious for his persecution of believers. So many believers in the church under the Roman Empire were facing suffering and they're facing persecution. And they wanted to know how do we react? Do we revolt? Do we complain? Do we just tolerate it? What are we supposed to do? And so this passage is again an encouragement to those people in times of suffering. Now, probably you have not faced suffering to the level that they did, depending on what part of the world you're tuning in from. Your suffering is probably of the much lesser variety. For that, you should be thankful. Perhaps it might include some animosity from others, some hostility, uh, some people scoffing you, mocking you. Um, At times, we might face Worse, perhaps discrimination at the workplace or other things. But there are those who face very real persecution even today as they did in the time of Peter. Now, I like what uh, Peter starts off with. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So first of all, Christ is your example. You're a follower of Christ. Jesus said he suffered and we will suffer too. People hated him. They will hate us too. And Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 
Now, this is very interesting. Arm yourself. Now, firstly, this apply, implies that you're in a war. The Christian life is not a pleasure cruise. It's not a lazy river ride. There's a water park near us. I like to take my kids there sometimes, and it has a lazy river. It's actually not my favorite part, but some people like this. They just lay, it out, lay there on a, on a tubi, and they don't have to do anything. They say, oh, I can just sleep. I can relax, and the river will take me around. I can float round and round this place. That's a, a lazy river. You don't need to swim. You don't need to do anything. That's not what the Christian life is like at all. It is a battle. Christian life is a battle against spiritual forces, Satan and his demons. So to win the battle, you have to first have the right approach mentally. Your attitude needs to be right. So if a soldier just gets up out of bed, rolls out of bed, and then kind of stumbles into the battle thinking this is going to be easy, he's probably going to lose. You need to arm yourself with the right mentality to fight. And so that's important to see. And second, this shows us that arming yourselves is a weapon. We normally wouldn't consider our attitude to be a weapon, but they are. God can use our attitudes to touch the loss for Christ, to bring glory to himself, to turn back evil. And a lot of the battle takes place in our mind. We need to be mentally, we need to be spiritually prepared for the possibility of facing suffering for Christ. Is that something you've thought of before? That you might suffer because of your relationship with Christ? That you might be persecuted? And it seems that the world is headed that way more and more. You need to be mentally prepared. You need to arm yourself with the same way of thinking that as Christ suffered, you may also be called to suffer. And if you're not prepared mentally for that, then it's like the battle is already lost. Now, Peter says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. <clears throat> and if you look in the context, there's a contrast between, again, living in the spirit and living in the flesh. And a contrast with doing the deeds of the flesh in verse 4 talks about all of those, the sensuality and the passions and whatnot, with doing the will of God. Verse 2, he says, you no longer are living for human passions, but for the will of God. So basically, there's a choice here. You can pursue your earthly passions, the things that your sinful flesh wants to do. And if you choose the way of the world, then you will not be persecuted by the world. The powers in the world and the peer pressure in the world will not persecute you for doing the same thing that they do. Do you see? When you choose to be like the world, then of course you won't be persecuted by the world for being a minority or for being different than they are because you are just the same as they are. It's only when you choose the way of Christ, that means you are ceasing from sin, okay? You are being sanctified, you're being holy, you are choosing the narrow road. When you choose God's way, then you will suffer in the flesh, potentially. You'll be persecuted for that. So there's a connection that Peter makes that the suffering is a result of the choices they made to do what is right, to be holy as God is holy. And so a lot of people, when they face that choice, well, I can follow the way of the world and I can enjoy myself in, in the flesh doing those things, or I can follow the way of God and then the world will laugh at me and be hostile towards me. And so some will choose the way of the world. 
And yet we are reminded throughout the book of First Peter and throughout all of Scripture that if we go the way of the world, we will, we will not receive the blessings of God. We will not have salvation or the eternal rewards, which are far more important. Now, another thing is that suffering helps to act as a purifying force. If you look at history, most of the time in world history when the church has grown the most has been in periods of significant persecution. Right after uh, Pentecost, the believers were hanging out in Jerusalem. They were not really yet fulfilling the Great Commission to go into all the world. They were just staying there. And then James, uh, the brother of John, was killed as a martyr by Herod and persecution was more intense and so believers started to spread throughout the world and they took the gospel with them and the church multiplied. And a lot of times the suffering that comes upon a church also sifts the chaff from the wheat and purifies the believers. So the ones who pass the test demonstrate their faith and their faith grows even more. So suffering can remind us that the world is temporary so we must not love the world or the things in the world. And so verse 2 continues in that same idea. It says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So you have a choice. Don't live for human passions, but live for the will of God. We have a choice. We always have a choice in what we do. So you can consider yourself. Are you living for the flesh just to satisfy yourself? And a lot of things could could demonstrate that. Uh, perhaps just could be sometimes wasting time by binge-watching Netflix or could be wasting time by just spending tens of hours on social media. Um, there are new trends about, you know, just laying in your bed uh, in your house for days at a time and not going anywhere and ordering in delivery. Um, obviously, indulging in sexual immorality, uh, gluttony. There are many, many ways to indulge in the flesh, and some of those things are enjoyable short-term. For me, I can remember back when I was a kid, and I would always look forward to summer vacation. Uh, summer vacation is coming, and I can play, and I can have fun, and I was so excited about it. But about the middle of summer vacation, I would start to get, I guess, a little bit bored of having too much fun. There's something God put inside of us that pushes us to achieve, to do something meaningful, to have purpose in our life. And if we just waste our time, then very soon that inner conscience will kick in and tell us we need to get to work and we need to do something meaningful. So towards the end of summer, I was looking forward to starting school again because there's a great achievement in accomplishing that. The same is true now if I take a vacation. If the vacation is too long toward the end of vacation, I start to think, I need to get back to work and I want to go and achieve something. So living according to the flesh has very, very diminishing returns. I was talking with my son about this recently. We were talking about Doritos and I said that Doritos have diminishing returns. And the first one is better than the second one and the second one is better than the third one and so on. After you eat two or three handfuls, you kind of start to get disgusted with it because this is obviously junk food. And so it's like that when you live according to the flesh, it's not satisfying long term. It only satisfies in the short term. So temptations promise more than they can deliver. Let's go on to verse three. 
For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So this is not a an exhaustive list, but it represents a few of the many works of the flesh. And there are many, many more. Think about yourself. Think about your own life. What works of the flesh? What things are tempting to you that this world has to offer? These things always promise much more than they can deliver. Now, before we came to Christ, he says, the time that is past is enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, you had enough of that before. Enough is enough. The believers already experienced those things. They already saw that these things could not satisfy them, could not make them happy, could not bring them a sense of peace and fulfillment. And so they saw the emptiness of what the world had to offer, which is why they chose Christ. And so Peter is saying, enough is enough. You already know those things are empty. Do not go back to them again. You know, there are some things that we know are empty. We know they will not satisfy us. And yet we go back to it again and again. And the satisfaction you get, the happiness you get is shorter and shorter and lower and lower every time. Proverbs 26, 11 says like this. It says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. That is what it is like to go back to the previous way of life. It's a disgusting image. Like, ew, no person would dream of doing that, what a dog is doing. But a dog does it. And it is foolish. And it is the same if a believer comes to the Lord recognizing the Lord has purpose and meaning, the world doesn't, and then goes back to the world Again, so notice verse 4, it says, with respect to this, they are surprised. What does this mean? It means that your old friends will be surprised when you don't join them in these types of activities anymore. Perhaps they will pressure you to give in. They might make fun of you. They might use sarcastic titles like know-it-all or goody-two-shoes or Mr. Perfect or stick-in-the-mud or party pooper or any kind of title which they want to use to try to pressure you to conform to what they're doing. Now, why does the world want you to do what they're doing? Because they want to feel less guilty about it. People might feel guilty doing something if they're the only one doing it. For example, uh, robbing. If one person goes in a store and everybody is looking at them and looking at them in a very negative way while they are stealing, that is high pressure not to do it. But then if every single person in the store is stealing and robbing, then it becomes much easier for them. And it removes this social stigma. It removes the guilt of stealing and of theft. So when the world is trying to pressure you to do what they are doing, it's not actually for your benefit. It's to make themselves feel better about themselves. So they may label you as being narrow-minded or judgmental or boring or dull. Whatever it is, do not give in to peer pressure. So think about it. What should you do when someone or a group of people is pressuring you to do something that is wrong, especially something which maybe was a bad habit of yours or an addiction of yours before you came to Christ? And then after you came to Christ, you want to stay away from it, and those people are pressuring you and pushing you in to do it. To, they're pushing you to do it. You need to be careful. The Bible says that the companion of fools will suffer harm. If those people do not have your best interests at heart, 
and they do not, then you perhaps need to uh, distance yourself so that you do not face those temptations. Or at least you don't face them as much. Okay, and notice here it says, they're surprised when you don't join and then they malign you. So they, they call you names and they laugh at you and do all the things that they try to do to push you into doing those wrong things. Peter gives a solution, or, or not a solution, but a reminder. He says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give an account to him, to the Lord. So when they're pressuring you, remember they will be judged by God for what they're doing. So you will be judged too, and if you join with them, you will also be judged along with them. And at that day when you're facing the Lord, I don't think you will buy the excuse saying, well, everybody was doing it, or they were doing it, or they pushed me into doing it. Uh, you don't accept that excuse from your children when they tell you that their brother or sister started it or told you to do it, and God will not accept that excuse from you either. No one will be able to withstand God's judgment. And it says, this is why the gospel was preached. The gospel is preached because everyone will have to face God as judge one day. The gospel is preached to give you a way out, to give you a way of escape so that you do not have to be condemned on that final judgment. You can be saved through Christ. He can take your sin. He can give you his righteousness so you don't have to face the condemnation on that last day. So basically you have two choices. You can either please the people around you, the world around you, who actually are, are miserable and guilty, and then join in with them, or you can please God. If you please the world, you face his judgment. If you please God, then God will bless you. So you can say no to these things. Okay, so this verse 6 also has another interesting point. It says, this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. Uh, so who are the ones who are dead? Uh, it is likely a reference to those who have suffered in the flesh to the point of being martyred. So the gospel was preached to your uh, fellow believers while they were still alive. They believed, they were persecuted, they suffered in the flesh, and as a result, they were martyred. Um, okay, so other people have died for this. Other people have been persecuted for it already but it was worth it for them because now they are facing God and God is pleased with them and they can escape this judgment that everyone has to uh, come into at some point uh, finally the final judgment okay so we should remember everyone will give an account and so this encourages us to live in the spirit Live in the Spirit. So, when you face these peer pressures, the world says, come, follow me, and it makes a big promise how nice it will be. Remember that it, what it will result in. Remember the end of this choice, and it will result in judgment. So, live in the Spirit and choose to please God rather than man, and then you'll be blessed by the Lord for that. All right, let's go forward. We'll read verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God's, as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so here basically these verses are filled with practical reminders of how to have godly Christian living day to day. Peter says the end of all things is at hand or is near. Near is clearly a relative term. Jesus' first coming ushered in these last days. And these last days continue from his first coming to his second coming. He could return at any time. So his return is imminent. And we need to keep that in mind. We need to look at this world and realize this world is temporary. And remember that our citizenship is in heaven. And when we have that longer term perspective to know that the things that you can see right now around you, look around you in the room that you're in right now, all the furniture, all the electronic gadgets, the house, any cars you can see out the window, everything you can see will not last. None of it will last. It's all short-term stuff. The end of all of these things is at hand. It will come. And so, how does that make us respond? It says, therefore, because this world will have an end, and it is, uh, it's short, this world is short, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Okay, so first, be self-controlled. Don't fall into temptation. Don't fall into temptation. Don't stray from the narrow path. You don't want to be caught with your hand in the cookie jar when Jesus returns. You don't want to lose self-control and follow after temptation. We need to be self-controlled. And it says to be sober-minded. Again, that comes back to our attitude and our mentality. Take things seriously. Take life seriously. And remember that our time on earth is limited, so we should make the most of it. And it says, for the sake of prayer. When you realize that the things around you that you see do not last, this should motivate you more to pray. Because the spiritual realm is the real realm, the eternal realm, that is going to last. People's souls will last. Work done for God's kingdom will last. And so that motivates us to pray, to pray for revival to pray for the souls of your friends and family and, and country, to pray for God's kingdom, to pray without ceasing. And then in verse 8, it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Keep loving one another earnestly. So keep loving, first of all, means you have to love to start out with, and then you need to keep loving. And it says earnestly, so zealously, uh, fervently, don't allow it to grow cold. God doesn't want us to be a bunch of Christian robots who, okay, I'm supposed to love others, now I will go and love others. And we just do it in a robotic way. He wants us to be observant, to be sensitive, to think about others' needs, and then to go and serve them. Uh, this morning in my family devotions with my children, we were looking at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, and actually the, the first really the first three chapters of Thessalonians have been talking about Paul's zeal and his longing and his heart and his compassion for the Thessalonian believers. That when Paul was absent from them, he wanted so much to visit them. 
And today we read that he was very concerned that they would give in to temptation. So let me find that verse for you in uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. It says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So verses like this show Paul's heart towards those he ministered to, that he wanted to see them and he wanted to hear about their Christian growth and he was very concerned that they might be tempted, that they might drift away or fall away. So back in Peter, we learn to keep loving one another earnestly and Paul is a great example of that to be thinking of others. Think of your spouse, think of your children, think of other believers in your church or your neighbors. What are some specific things you can do to show your love for them? And when we make application from Bible study time, it's important to be specific in our applications, not too general. It's very easy to say, well, I will love others more this week. How are you going to love others more? At the end of the week, is that something that can be measured? We should make measurable and specific applications so that we can see very clearly, did we do it or not? So you could say, okay, I'll love my spouse by spending 30 minutes of quality time with her each night this week doing whatever she wants or just chatting. That would be a more specific way to love others. And you could set the same kind of goal for yourself in loving different family members or friends or people from your church or community. And it says love covers a multitude of sins. So yeah, love is the probably the most basic, the most important character quality that believers are supposed to have. All right, and then going forward, it says show hospitality to one another. And I like this part that it adds, he says, without grumbling. You could, if it was given in an oral way, it would almost be like without grumbling, okay? So it's not proper hospitality if you grumble about it. If you have your friends over and in front of them, you smile and say, make yourself at home. And, and then when they go away, you grumble and say, I can't believe they did that. They went into my fridge and they did this or that, or they made this mess and they didn't pick it up. And you grumble about that person, then, well, God sees the heart. And even though there's a facade of hospitality, it is not genuine. Uh, I just saw a title of an article today. I didn't read it. It says, nine out of 10 people regret saying, make yourself at home. So be genuine. I wouldn't say don't be hospitable, but in other words, I, I mean, you shouldn't be like, well, I can't do it without complaining, so I shouldn't do it at all. No, just learn to do it without complaining. Be a servant. Help them feel at home. And everyone can show hospitality to others in some way. You might say, well, I don't have a home. You can still be hospitable. Perhaps you can invite someone out to a meal and treat them. So this is another way you could be hospitable or to your, you know, to your dorm or to somewhere, to a park. And then even when you go to other people's homes, you can be sensitive and look for ways to serve and to make people feel comfortable. Uh, for example, there's someone who comes to my house often for small group fellowship. And after the meals, I find him, he's washing dishes. We didn't ask him to. He just volunteers and he goes in the, that, in the kitchen and he starts washing dishes by himself. And even though it's not his home, he's actually being hospitable to all of the guests because he's helping us to host them and he's helping without being asked. Good qualities. Okay, 
Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Uh, Paul talks about gifts as well in Romans 12, 6 through 8. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. What is your gift? Are you using it to serve others? This mentions a lot of gifts. Now notice that gifts is not just teaching. Some people say, oh, the pastor, he's gifted, he teaches. Okay, I hope so. I hope he's gifted at teaching, but there's many other kinds of gifts. Service, encouraging. Do you know someone like that who just likes to encourage others? I do, and it's very encouraging. Okay, and others who are, have the gift of generosity. I've known people who were very, very good at giving money away. They're actually very good at making money, and I think God put it, made it that way, and they were very, very generous. Others are gifted at leading, um, some in doing acts of mercy. So there's many kinds of gifts, and also uh, Peter talks about several different kinds of gifts. He talks about speaking and serving. Um, so there's some kinds of speaking gifts, perhaps evangelism, perhaps preaching, uh, prophecy, and so on. And then there's other serving gifts. So there's some talking gifts, and then there's some doing gifts, and all are important. So first of all, don't think that your gift is less than anyone else's. In the book of Corinthians, Paul says that the Holy Spirit gives as he wills. He is the one who chooses how much to give, and he does not make mistakes. He chooses what gift to give to you, and you could say how much of it or what mixture of gifts. He is like the painter with the with the many different colors, and he mixes them together and then gives you just what he wants to. So don't be jealous of others' gifts, and also don't think that yours is more important and become prideful, and also don't think that yours is less and then become uh, lazy or not using it as God has called you to do. How should you know your gift? Now, I personally don't think you should spend a lot of time trying to figure it out, thinking, hmm, what's my gift? What could it be? You can go online, and then you could, you could do a Google search. I could do a Google search right now. What's my spiritual gift? I could probably find 50 different websites with all kinds of surveys and questions and things to do to find out your gift. What should you do to find out your gift? My advice is start serving. Start serving. Hopefully you're already serving in your church. If you're not, just go up to the leaders and say, I want to use my spiritual gift for building out the body of Christ. How can I start serving? Now maybe they know you somewhat and they can recommend some ministry for you to get involved in. But even if they do not, they could just put you somewhere. And hopefully they will. Hopefully they will uh, give you the opportunity to use your gifts in the church and put you somewhere. Now, it might be that if they put you somewhere, you you or the people around you might find out that you're not very gifted in that area. Um, for myself, I know better than to try to audition to the worship team and to try to do do singing or do instruments probably very soon. And I hope they, they would come to me and tell me, this is this isn't it. This is not your field. Um, we suggest you do something else. Look in another ministry. So it might be that you serve in one area and you or the people around you notice you're not very good at that. Okay, so God hasn't gifted you in that. So that 
helps you on that path to know what you are gifted in. Go to another area and another area. And sooner or later, if you keep serving, then you will come to the right place. You yourself will feel fulfilled. You will feel that God has given you a calling, that you are able to help in that area, and probably the people around you will affirm that in you too, and they may give you some comments. Oh, you are so good at serving in this way, and they'll give you some comments to affirm that this is the place God wants you to be. Now, I hope that you can serve in your church, but take note that the church, first of all, is not just a building. Their brothers and sisters outside of a church building, in the community, uh, in hospitals, in schools, in orphanages, all over the place, we can go out into this world to serve. So serving God is should not and is not limited to being inside of the church. You can do it in your home with hospitality, and you can do it many other places as well. So start serving, and as you serve, pray that God will give you good feedback and that he will lead you to serving in just the way that he wants you to do it. Now notice it says, serve by the strength that God supplies. Don't do it in your own power. Now it could be that you're very gifted in something and you think, well, I can just roll out of bed and, and do it. It's, it's easy for me. And maybe you can, but that doesn't mean that you should. Now take, for example, someone who is gifted at piano. And two of my sons are taking piano lessons. Let's say one of them is very gifted and practice it and doesn't practice. So just thinks, well, I'm gifted and I can just go play. That person who's gifted in piano could actually, or, or will they play better than someone who is not so gifted but practices more? Maybe not. And they certainly cannot do better than if they practice. So if you have a gift, you need to nurture it. You need to practice it is possible that someone who prepares very diligently and practices can do much better than someone who is naturally gifted but lazy and doesn't practice or prepare. So whatever area you are gifted in, you need to practice, you need to use it. And as you use it, those gifts will develop more. And again, you need to do it through the strength which God supplies. Not on your own, but do it through his strength and be humble to him. And here, note the purpose of the gifts. It says, in order that in everything God may be glorified. So the gifts are not for self-glorification. They're not for building up yourself. They're for building up the body of Christ. So there's no room for pride or looking for the spotlight when we are using the spiritual gifts that God has given to us. So this passage encourages us to live in the Spirit. Choose the way of the Lord rather than the way of this world. And we can do that practically by using the spiritual gifts that God has given to us, relying on his strength, and loving others, showing hospitality, serving others, and working for the Lord in our community, in our church, and in our families. So I hope that this passage has encouraged you. So I put a couple links in the description below. One of them is for the entire First Peter study ebook. It's a Bible study guide available on our website, studyandobey.com. That has discussion questions for this passage and for every other passage in First Peter. These discussion questions can be used to help with a small group Bible study 
or for personal reflection. Uh, there's also a link to our website with just this passage, which has the discussion questions for 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. You can check those out if you like. And I would invite you to click that like button and that subscribe button because if you support this channel and basically verse by verse Bible teaching with an emphasis on obedience, then when you like and subscribe, it helps that message go out to more people and it will really help support this channel. So thank you so much for that. And I wish you all of God's best and I'll see you next time. To see our entire library of over 800 Bible studies, please visit our website at www.studyandobey.com.